Welcome to the Inspirational Tales podcast. We all experience hardships and obstacles in our lives, but it is how we choose to respond to these events that can shape our present and future years. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest today is James Shepherd. James was in his mid-twenties when he started having heart issues, which ultimately resulted in him going into heart failure and receiving a heart transplant. After being told that he needed to stay fit post-surgery, James took up cycling, and within a year he had organised and completed a 200km bike ride to raise awareness for organ donation. Now, three years on from his heart transplant surgery, James is living an amazingly full life. In this interview, he discusses what life was like for him leading up to the transplant, the extraordinary feats that he has achieved since then, as well as the ins and outs of what the process of receiving a heart transplant has been like for him. He also emphasises the importance of becoming an organ donor and how much receiving this amazing gift has changed his life. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, James. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, good. Thank you. So can we start off by you telling us a bit about what it was like growing up for you? Yeah, for sure. So I grew up as a pretty normal kid out in the suburbs, was pretty fine. Nothing was out of the ordinary. And then maybe when I was about 11 or 12, my stepmom actually noticed that my back was a bit not normal, like my shoulders were hunched over a little bit. So in uh, my childhood, I got diagnosed with scoliosis and all throughout year eight wore a back brace, which the only benefit was getting people to try and punch me in the abs and not knowing that I was wearing a perspex frame. I ended up having to go on and have full spinal surgery in year nine. Um, I had to have two metal rods placed down my spine, so full spinal fusion. And I guess that was my first exposure, unfortunately, into what it's like to go through major medical procedures. To the good, the good news, I guess, is that I came through that really well. And since then, I have had no spinal issues and it was really only a problem for maybe six to 12 months and then I was back to my normal self and from 16 to 25, I was, yeah, a pretty normal guy. Got through high school, went to uni, started a job as a travel agent, as a foot in the door to the travel industry and then ended up working in that job for 12 years and yeah, life was, um, was pretty good. It was pretty normal. I was traveling and yeah, everything was good. Okay. So then how old were you when you started to notice something was going wrong with your heart? I was probably in my mid to late 20s and I started experiencing an irregular heartbeat. Just this weird feeling inside your chest. For anyone listening who's ever had an irregular heartbeat, they'll attest that you absolutely know when your heart is not acting normal. Yeah, just palpitations on and off. You know, I've described it as it's like you have a drummer inside your chest who can't keep a beat. Like it's just all over the place and it's not a nice feeling, but it also wasn't holding me back in life. So I kind of just ignored that for too long, really, probably over a year, maybe even two years. Oh, wow. Yeah, which in hindsight was not a great decision, but as a lot of, I guess, younger people, perhaps males in particular do, they think they're 
invincible and you know i don't need to see a doctor she'll be right and yeah i just overlooked it and then i ended up having a procedure i had to have my gallbladder out for something just irrelevant and i remember waking up from that and the first thing they said when i woke up was do you know your heart's out of rhythm and like deep down i'm thinking oh yeah that makes sense it's felt weird for a while and just their reaction i instantly knew okay this is not a good thing they're like you need to go and see your gp this afternoon you need to get on blood thinner medication instantly and all these alarm bells are going off and i'm like oh okay it is a bad thing and maybe i should have looked into it and and yeah that was i guess lucky in a way that i had those tummy issues and had to have my gallbladder out and it really triggered me to start looking at my heart properly and and getting the advice that clearly i needed So you go along to the doctors and what happens then? Yep. So originally all that we thought was wrong was that I had atrial fibrillation or AF and a regular heartbeat, which is super common. Heaps of people live with that and deal with that and and that's fine, but ideally you don't want to. So I started a course of medication to correct that arrhythmia. Initially, it didn't really have much success, but Eventually, I got back into a normal rhythm and probably stayed in a normal rhythm for almost a year, which was great. And then I was actually overseas traveling with my two brothers at the time. And I remember like the night it happened, I just felt my heart go back out of rhythm. And instantly, I just looked at them and I said, nah, it's gone. It's back out of rhythm. And as soon as I got back, I was in the US at the time. There was no chance I was going to get medical treatment in the US for a heart condition with the way their system works. So luckily I was uh, two days from returning home. So got back home and went back to see the doctors and yeah, basically was told that, okay, we've, we've tried enough on the medication route. We need to start at looking at doing some more, I guess, invasive procedures. And the next step for correcting an arrhythmia is, is to get an ablation, they call it, or a maze procedure which is basically where they put a line in through a main artery into the heart and basically burn or freeze, depending on the, on the way they do it, like a lattice work across the surface of your heart, which essentially what it does is when that heals and becomes scar tissue, it stops the irregular electricity pulses from going through and causing the offbeat. It's, I don't know how it works. It's science, but that's essentially how it's supposed to work is that it's supposed to stop the wrong electronic messages getting through and only the correct one finds its its natural course through and, and away you go. I booked in to have this ablation procedure and went into hospital to have that. It's not all that invasive. They put a line in through the groin and it's pretty straightforward. Unfortunately for me, Once they got inside the heart, they found a clot, a blood clot in the left atrial appendage, which is a part of the heart, which not much is known about it. It's a little appendage off to the side that doesn't really have a purpose as far as I can tell, but they found this this clot in there and obviously had to abort the procedure straight away. From there, the next decision was, well, I still have to have this procedure done what's the safest way to do it and they also needed to clear out this clot so it was decided that I would have full open heart bypass surgery so I had a full stenotomy 
yeah, they were going to go in and do this maze procedure and also remove the clot and hopefully I'd recover from that and, and all would be well. That sounds pretty extreme. Up until this point with my heart condition, everything was pretty minor in terms of what I was having to have done. You know, it was some medication here or there or a small procedure in that it's just a small puncture wound and they put a line in. There was no massive operations and potential long recovery time. So I remember sitting in the cardiologist's office with my dad and, you know, it's probably the first time that you're like, okay, that's, that's huge. That's really big. And, you know, I unfortunately had been through a doctor's appointment like that before with my back where you're being told that you're working on a part of the body that if it goes wrong, it goes wrong for, for good kind of thing. How do you deal with hearing that twice? Yeah, twice. I think the first time around when I was a kid with my back, I probably didn't know any better. I remember in that doctor's appointment, my mum was crying and I didn't really probably understand the magnitude of what they were explaining they were going to do to me. But when you're 28, 29, you understand when they're saying you're going to have full open heart bypass surgery. And I think throughout all of my health issues, my attitude has always been, I don't care what's wrong or what has to be done. Let's just start it and let's get going. Obviously you worry, like for sure that's, that's only human, but yeah, my opinion's always been that, well, we're only doing this because I have to do it and I'm only doing it because the outcome is worth going through to do it. And if this is what I have to do to get better, then then so be it. So I kind of just took it on the chin really and was like, all right, if that's what we're going to do, that's what we've got to do. And I remember going to work after that appointment and I had to tell my boss, oh, by the way, I'm going to need some time off, probably about four to six weeks. I've got to have open heart surgery. And that's probably like two or three hours after they told me that. And I got a bit teary in that meeting, which is weird because it's just like my office, like, whatever, I'm getting time off work, but obviously it affected me. But yeah, as I said, you know, my attitude really was always, all right, let's book in a date and let's, let's get it done. So you book in the date and then you go in for the surgery. How does it go? Not ideal. The surgery went fine. I got through it fine. However, I never really recovered properly from it. The whole point of this procedure, as I described, was to fix my heart rhythm and to make it back into a normal rhythm and that didn't correct itself and then my heart never really recovered properly from the major surgery either and I just found myself instead of recovering and improving going downhill and downhill quite quickly and I just remember being in hospital at this point you know what was supposed to be maybe 10 days in hospital and six weeks in total and life would be back to normal I spent the next about eight to 10 weeks in hospital, just trying to get over this surgery and anything that they tried to do just wasn't helping. I was on a whole range of different medications to try and fix the arrhythmia. I had issues with my thyroid that we didn't know about before. When they took out the left atrial appendage and and examined that, they found that I had traces of this thing called amyloidosis which is basically 
It's like when calcium builds up inside a muscle. If you think of like eating a, like a steak, for example, you're not going to want to eat a steak that has little balls of calcium through it. It basically causes the muscle to seize up and become really stiff and rigid. And that was really not a great thing to find out about because amyloidosis or cardiac amyloidosis doesn't really have a cure. It's pretty well unknown. And really the only ways they try and treat it at the moment is to do chemotherapy. So I'd come out of this surgery. It hadn't fixed my heart. I was getting sicker. They found all these additional things wrong with me. And it was really just a a period of two or three months of, of mass confusion. I didn't know what was going on. My family didn't really have a great idea of what was going on. And to no one's like, I'm, it's no one's fault. I was a very complex case. Like, but yeah, it was a really tough time just trying to get any information and trying to find out what is wrong and what can we do next to get better. Eventually, I got referred to an amyloidosis specialist because it was looking like that was, was a thing. And, and yeah, that, that was the path I'd have to go down because that overarching was the worst thing that they found. I started seeing this specialist and I was still in hospital at the time and did a range of tests, gene testing, bone marrow samples, a lot of blood work. And fortunately for for me, no amyloidosis was found in any of the tests that they did, which was great news because you can't have a transplant really of any kind if you have amyloidosis because it's the kind of thing that would just invade the new organ and would you'd just end up in the same position again. So that was really good news to find out that, okay, they found a trace of it, which is not uncommon, but they hadn't found it anywhere else in the body, and that was really good. Two or three months go by. I'm in hospital. At this stage, I'm in end-stage heart failure. I'd lost 30% of my body weight. I weighed about 40 kilos, and I got sent home just with a book on how to live with heart failure and I was going to have follow-up appointments and yeah, I was just really confused. I didn't know what was going on. I went home for two weeks and then was completely overloaded overloaded with fluid. So I had fluid on my lungs. I had fluid on my whole body. I was like the Michelin man. You could push your fingers into my arm and the imprint would stay there for like a minute as the fluid came back, it was, wow. it was that bad. And so I saw my GP and he's like, nah, this is not good. And I got admitted to a different hospital out in the suburbs. And the first thing the cardiologist said to me there was, so what do you have? What have you been diagnosed with? And at this point, other than a regular heartbeat, I hadn't been diagnosed with any overarching heart condition that was causing all these major issues and dramas over the last few months and causing this end, uh, this heart failure. And so this cardiologist took it on himself to say, well, you're not leaving here without a diagnosis and really went away and studied my file and studied my family history, which has a history of cardiac conditions. And we got to the point of getting my diagnosis, which was cardiomyopathy. When he told me that I had cardiomyopathy, it wasn't all that surprising because my uncle and my grandfather both had cardiomyopathy. 
I guess it was frustrating in a way because we had told doctors that in the past and whether it was just looked over or tests just didn't show it at that time, I'm not sure, but it was good at least to finally have a diagnosis. Can you explain to us what that is? Yeah, so cardiomyopathy is basically when the walls of your heart get thicker over time so that the heart is a muscle. So in order for the heart to pump effectively, it needs to be quite elastic. But with cardiomyopathy, the the muscle gets thicker, so it makes it harder to pump. So it doesn't pump enough blood essentially around the body and that leads to heart failure. And it just gets progressively worse over time. If you just left it untreated, eventually you'd have end-stage heart failure and you would pass away. The only real thing you can do to correct cardiomyopathy is have a heart transplant. And so this was the next step. I was basically told in order for you to get better, you're going to have to have a heart transplant. So you were sent home originally with heart failure and told to live with that. And had you not then found this cardiologist that dug in further, you essentially would have died. Is that what you're saying? Possibly. I was really unwell. And yeah, I was lucky that I guess I found my way to a hospital and to a cardiologist who he sat up for hours. Like he told me he would come in the next day and be like, I was reading journals till 3am trying to figure this out. And I found that you can have amyloidosis just in the left atrial appendage and nowhere else. I found it in journals, but it's only ever been found in post-mortem. And I'm going to present this to the Alfred Heart Transplant Clinic and prove that you're a candidate for a transplant. And like went to that level of, of care and like that's just amazing. It is. I'm sure that makes you feel so good as well to know that there's someone that cares that much to actually help you like that. Absolutely, especially because the where I'd come from, the first hospital, which again is not a criticism, but I never felt like anyone really wanted to own my condition. I was on the cardiac ward, then I was on an endocrinology ward, then general medicine was looking after me and I was going around every ward in the hospital and I guess it made it hard to have one source of truth and one person to just own it and say you're my case and I'm going to follow this through to the end. I dealt with some great doctors and great people at the first hospital but I think it was just I was really sick, I had a lot of complex issues going on and there were so many people involved that it got a bit confusing for everyone but yeah finding my way to this next place and this one uh, man in particular just incredible level of care and attention to detail and yeah it was I mean it it led to that those next steps you know I've never been happier to be told you need a heart transplant because finally after months of you know really being at the end you know I'd had meetings about creating a will and end of life plans and things like that and to have all right there's a next step now great let's go on and do that and that's what I did. So what was the process next? Yeah, so I got transferred to the Alfred uh, Heart Transplant Clinic. Uh, The Alfred are the only hospital in Victoria that do heart and lung transplants. So I got transferred there and first thing they had to do was get all the fluid off my body. Because I was in heart failure, I was just retaining fluid far too much. So I spent probably the first fortnight just 
draining myself essentially. And it was probably once they'd got the fluid off me that I first realized how sick I was. This was a point where I could look in the mirror and I could see my ribs sticking out. I could see all my shoulder bones and I was like, oh, I look like a sick person off the movies, off TV. Like I'm not good. And then I started the process of a workup for a transplant. And basically the workup process is pretty intense. It's a full body check of everything. They check your teeth. They check your blood, everything. If, if they just go through you with a fine tooth comb, even down to mentally how stable you are and how prepared you are because taking on a transplant, in particular a heart transplant, is a lot to take on. And some people do struggle with guilt and other things when they receive a transplant. Obviously, to receive a heart transplant, a lung transplant, you're only receiving this because of the generosity of someone else who's now no longer with us. So that comes with responsibility and it it comes with a lot of mental load, more for others than some perhaps, but it's all part of the process and the workup as well is, I guess, gaining an understanding of, of how it works and being comfortable with that. And so you go through the workup process. It's about a two-week process. And then I was told, look, if I got a transplant today, I would die after it. I wouldn't be strong enough to recover. And they set a goal that if I want to be listed to get a transplant, I had to put on three kilos So I spent the next few weeks just trying to put on weight. I hadn't been eating well for months because when you're sick, you just don't have an appetite and you don't eat well. So I was pretty much living off hospital grade protein shakes and taking shots of collagen, like just straight fat. It was not enjoyable, but it did the trick. And a few weeks later, I met the grade to to be listed and got listed for my heart transplant. Yeah, that was around September of, I think, 2017. So, uh, yeah, a few years back. So then you just wait. Is that what happens? Then you wait. Yeah. So once upon a time, you'd uh, get given a pager and you'd have the pager on you at all times. But mobile phone technology is pretty good now. So basically told I can't go more than an hour away from the Alfred at any time and that I need to have my phone on me at all times. And... They pretty much gave me an indication that hopefully I would get a call within two or three months of being listed. So I thought that was pretty amazing. Like that's pretty quick. But also I started a program of prehab essentially because whenever that phone did ring, I, I and they, the doctors, wanted me to be as fit and healthy as I could be so that when it came to recovering, I would... Um, I would hit the ground running and, and, and give it all I've got. So for the next eight months, it turned out to be, I basically, my full-time job was going into the Alfred two or three times a week. In there, they have basically a full gym set up. Picture your local gym. It's not much different to that. And in there, they have a team of physios where their sole goal is helping people waiting for transplants and helping people who have just had their transplant. So for eight months, I went there and 
to everyone's credit, I mean, the physios, the doctors, the dietitian, nutrition team at the Alfred, I actually got really quite stable in that eight months while I was waiting. Probably the healthiest that I'd felt in a couple of years, which was incredible considering I was waiting for a heart transplant. So much so that some people are like, are you sure you still need a transplant? You're looking pretty good. I was like, well, yeah, I feel okay right now, but cardiomyopathy doesn't go away. And yes, I need a transplant. And so, yeah, I got, I got pretty well. And then, yeah, it was um, one night in early May in 2018 and the phone rang and there was a private number and every phone call that rang with a private number for that eight months leading up, you, yeah, your heart skips a beat. Well, that's probably the wrong phrase for me, but <laughs> You know what I mean? You think, oh, this is it. But yeah, this time it was it. And yeah, I answered the phone and they pretty much said, hi, James, we've got some good news. We've got a, a really good candidate for transplant for you. And yeah, it's time to come in. Pretty crazy. So eight months later, you go in yep. to get your heart transplant. Yeah. What's the process there? I mean, it's pretty weird. I drove myself to the hospital, which people find strange. I don't know why. I like, I just drove. It was good. But yeah, I walked into emergency and just said, hi, I'm James Shepherd. I'm here for a heart transplant, which I think is the silliest phrase of all time. But <laughs> that's what I said. And Well, that's what you were there for. I mean, yeah, I wasn't lying. And they all look up and they're like, oh, we've been waiting for you. I went in and first had an x-ray of my chest just to see that my chest was all clear and then that was all good and then I went upstairs and had my first dose of immune suppression medication which is something you sign up to for life once you've um, had your transplant and I can talk about that a bit more in a minute. Then I had a full body shave down which is a pleasurable experience. I don't know why they need to shave your arms and legs when you're having chest surgery but anyway they did. So that was interesting and I just spent a few hours with my family that were there with me and yeah, I had to go in. I got the call around 7.30pm and had to be in by 9pm and didn't go into surgery until about 1am or 2am the next morning. So there was a lot of sitting around but it was quite casual, it was fun, I was joking with family, It was it was a nice time, it wasn't a stressful time, it wasn't a... A really a wor- worrying time. I can't speak for my family. I don't know how they were feeling. I should probably ask, but I was feeling really positive and ready to go. And so, yeah, went in in the early hours of the morning. The surgery was less than two hours, I think. And yeah, woke up a day later in intensive care and yeah, haven't looked back since. So I've heard you say that when you woke up, you didn't feel anything. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so so many people are like, oh, how did you feel? It must feel so different. But for me, as you just said, I felt nothing, which is something I hadn't felt in a long time. Because I'd had this irregular heartbeat, I'd just learnt to live with that and I'd forgotten that it's normal to feel nothing. You shouldn't feel your heart working. And that's what I finally felt. It just I was alive, I was breathing, and it was just quiet, and that was that was amazing. Yeah, it just felt it just felt calm, and and yeah, that was really good. So, what's the process next? Once you've got the heart transplant, you're feeling good. What happens now? Yeah. So, next step is I was in intensive care for five days, and then 
on, I think about day seven or eight, I started my rehab program. So like I was doing beforehand for three months after my transplant, I did rehab at the Alfred three days a week, simple gym program, some walking on a treadmill, some spinning on a bike, some simple weights. And after the three months, I was running on the treadmill, which I'd never done in my life. I hate running, <laughs> but here I was. Um, I was doing the hills program on the bike machine. And yeah, it was just an incredible turnaround. I got discharged from hospital on day 11, which is almost a record for a heart transplant. To be sent oh, home wow. inside two weeks is unheard of. And yeah, for the next three months, I had full-time rehab. And also full-time checkups with the heart clinic uh, would have to have biopsies where they put a line through your neck and down into your heart and take little samples to check whether I was having any rejection. And to date, three years later, I've had zero rejection of my new heart, which is ridiculously good. And yeah, I was feeling really great. I was feeling healthy. I was feeling fit and coming towards the end of my physio program the head physio is like all right you need to commit to something to look after your new heart and moving forward it's a muscle like any other muscle and it needs to be kept active and worked out so you need to find something to to keep it going and I've never been a gym person I don't really love the gyms all that much the gym at the Alfred was great because you're there with like-minded people going through similar struggles and you see amazing stories that was cool but gyms in general aren't really my vibe and I had to think about it and I thought well I've always wanted to ride my bike to work and I have some mates and some family and friends that cycle so I was like yeah I'm going to get a bike and I'm going to become a cyclist so that's what I set my my goal towards for for the near future. So you would think that you're going to take up cycling leisurely but you decide to do a 20 kilometer around the bay ride. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I don't know why I just decided that everything I had to do, it had to be challenging. I did the 20k bike ride, which for any cyclist is not actually that far. But you had just had a heart transplant. Yeah, I did it in, I was five months after my heart transplant that I signed up to do that. And I did some little training rides beforehand. I think the maximum I did was about 12 kilometers. So I was feeling good that I could push the 20 on the day. And the 20Ks went like that. Like I had family and friends with me doing it. And we got back to Albert Park at the end and I was like, oh, I could do that again. That was amazing. (laughs) And I think that spawned me on to my, I was like, I need to do more. I need to find the next challenge. And that's where... Uh, this thing called Heart Trail came about where I decided that I was going to come up with this bike ride and raise awareness for organ donation and and yeah, that's what I did next. So can you explain a bit more about that to us? Yeah. So for a long time, I'd wanted to go and visit the Silo Art Trail, which is an art trail in the Mallee district of Victoria, so northwest of Victoria. Basically, a bunch of old grain silos have been painted by Melbourne and international street artists, massive murals. They're incredible. And I'd always wanted to go and check it out. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll drive up there and have a look. And then I don't even know why, but I decided, you know what? No, let's go and cycle the silo (laughs) heart trail. 
I hadn't heard of anyone had done it before, but I was like, yeah, we could do that. So yeah, we decided to put together this thing called the Heart Trail where we would ride the Silo Art Trail. It's a 200 kilometer journey and we decided we'd do it over the Australia Day long weekend. So yeah, I was still under a year from having a heart transplant, which is ridiculous. And yeah, off we went. A team of 12 of us rode the 200 kilometers, split it up over three days and it's by far one of the best things I've ever done. Just being able to spread the word and I guess the positive outcomes of organ donation was why I wanted to do it. Being able to talk to local people along the way, we were invited to speak at an Australia Day breakfast before we took off on the first day and even just going to the pub on the nights in between the rides and local people coming up to our group and be like, oh, we saw you on the news talking about coming and riding up here. Oh, you're that guy. Oh, that's incredible. I told my grandson about what you guys are doing. You know, getting feedback like that really validated, okay, this wasn't just a great personal challenge, but people are getting things out of this and that's an amazing feeling. And probably wasn't until the last day of the ride that we were in the middle of nowhere, like absolutely nowhere. And we we're riding along past this farm and we're just coming up and there's these two people standing on the side of the road. And we, as we got closer, they were just there cheering us and clapping us along in the just middle locals. of nowhere. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I was like, how did they, what, this, this is so good. And anyway, at the end of the day, they had got in their car and drove up to where we were finishing and we had a chat to them and they're like, yeah, we saw you on the news and we knew you were riding along our route. So we mapped out roughly when you were going to come past. So we came up in the car to cheer you on. That's amazing. And that made me really emotional. I was like, all right, that's like, that's so good that people care and people are interested and yeah, wanting to, to learn about the story and learn more about organ donation. And yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible ride, an incredible weekend. And yeah, something I hope to emulate again soon. Heart Trail, the team have gone on and done the Around the Bay bike ride, the full Around the Bay bike ride, 217 kilometers in one day since oh, then. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, we did that the year later. Oh, you did that too? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, just another ridiculous next step. And then the year after that, I went to the UK and competed for Australia at the World Transplant Games in cycling, which I didn't even know was a thing until I got listed for a transplant. And they said, yeah, there's like an Olympics for transplant people. So instantly that was my one day goal. And so, yeah, I went to Newcastle in the UK and rode my bike in three different races over there. And I wouldn't go checking the results because I didn't dominate. <laughs> no, that doesn't matter. That's not why I was there. Some of the guys are incredibly, they're just so good. But for me, I was there because I could be there and that was what was important. And so, yeah, my cycling journey has really become a big part of my life, which has been amazing and something that I hadn't planned for. But it's been it's been really positive and, and it's kept me healthy and fit as well you know I cycle to work every day which is something I never used to do and you know would go cycling on a nice day for leisure and again something I would never have used to do and I guess taking advantage of what I've got is really important and 
being able to give back is really important to me as well, which is, I guess, why I tied in this ride into promoting organ donation as well. You know, I could have gone and just done it and not said a word about it, but I wanted to talk about it. I'm happy to talk about my story and I want people to know about organ donation because at any given time, there's at least 2,000 people waiting for an organ in Australia and another 20,000 on dialysis waiting for kidney transplants. And although if you did a straw poll of Aussies, I'm sure you'd find that most, in fact, I think the stats are about 70% are for organ donation. They're like, yeah, it's a good idea. But only 30% are registered organ donors. So there's a huge divide between the people who are for it but have bothered to actually register. So, yeah, talking about it and creating awareness and spreading that message has become a really important thing for me. So in regards to that, can you tell our listeners how to become an organ donor? It's not hard, is it? It's not at all. It's an online form on the Donate Life website, which takes you, I've timed it, if you have all your details ready to go, 46 seconds. (laughs) You literally, all you need is your Medicare number and away you go. A lot of people, especially probably those uh, a bit older, like 40 plus, it used to be part of signing up for your driver's license but that system changed several years ago and a lot of people don't know that so some people think that they're registered and aren't so we'll i definitely suggest jumping on and double checking by just trying to sign up again and it'll either say thanks you already are or thanks now you are yeah it's really easy on the donate life website but Equally, what's important to registering is having a conversation with your family because at the end of the day, whether you're registered or not, it's always going to be the family's decision if it ever came to that point. So making sure they know your wishes. If you register as an organ donor and you're happy to be an organ donor, bring it up over dinner next time you're having a family dinner. Say, oh, by the way, I signed up as an organ donor the other day. So if anything ever happens... Um, that's what I want is, um, is really, really important that that conversation happens. I think the numbers are if you're registered and you have spoken with your family about it, nine times out of 10, your wishes would be granted and, and you would become an organ donor. If you've registered but your family doesn't know that you've registered, about 30% of the time the family would say, no, we're not sure about that. And then obviously, if you're not registered and you've never talked about it, well, then obviously the odds are a lot lower as well. So, yeah, it's just the conversation is is probably the most important part, to be honest. All the details for where to go to become an organ donor will be in the show notes for this episode, as well as if you want to follow along James's journey in the Heart Trail, the details are also in the show notes. If someone's sitting on the fence or they're listening to this and they're going, oh, might be a good idea... What would you say to them? I think I would say to anyone who isn't a registered donor and has been thinking about it to really focus on the positive outcomes of what organ donation can lead to. And my story is only one of thousands. Like there are people out there doing amazing things with this second chance that they've been given. And I think if I was to become an organ donor one day, the way I look at it is, 
what an amazing gift and legacy that I can leave behind for someone else who has really struggled and has been really sick to find a new lease on life and go on and do things that, you know, they perhaps thought, well, that's never going to happen for me. Me specifically, it's being fit and healthy and active and doing these sporting things that I just couldn't do growing up. And now I'm engaged to be married in a few months' time. And that's something that, you know, I resigned to the fact that, well, okay, maybe that will never happen for me because I'm not going to be here long enough or whatever. And giving someone the opportunity to to live a longer and fuller life is, you can't buy that, but to gift it is incredible. What do you think are some things you've learnt from going through this experience? I think personally I've learnt that you, to begin with, you should really listen to your body. If you're not feeling right, get checked because I don't know what my outcome would have been if I had looked into my heart condition, you know, two or three years earlier when I started experiencing symptoms and and just ignored them. We're not invincible and it's important to look after your health and I think it's crucial that you listen to yourself and, and be smart about getting the help that you might need and you might need nothing and that's great but at least you have that peace of mind and and then I guess going through what I've been through and coming out the other side you know it's given me just an amazing outlook and perspective on the bigger picture I think we get bogged down in in the little things but in general life's pretty good and it's important that we take the opportunities that we're given and and live you know as best a life as we can and and yeah, don't hold back. You know, if there's something that you want to do and it, it means something to you, go out and, and do it, go for it. And yeah, I think it's important to live every day as, as good as can. You touched a bit on er- earlier about the immunosuppressant drugs. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, for sure. So I take immune suppression medication because the human body is so smart that it recognizes that anything foreign in it doesn't belong there and it wants to get rid of it so any foreign organ whether it's heart or lungs or whatever naturally your body tries to fight that off and kill it because it doesn't think it belongs there and so I have to lower my immune system far enough that it can't really tell that the new heart is a foreign body and so I guess the biggest balance medically for me at the moment is getting that balance right because if I suppress my immune immune system too much, then I'll just get sick all the time. I'll catch a cold and flu all the time or heaven forbid COVID. But if I don't suppress it enough, if my immune system's too strong, then I might get organ failure or heart, um, yeah, organ rejection, uh, which can basically kill the tissue of my new heart which there are different levels of rejection and an early stages rejection you can recover from, you medicate for it and, and it'll be fine. But if you get to sort of a, a higher level of rejection, there's no going back. Essentially, the tissue is dying at this point And the only way to survive that is to get listed and get another transplant in time. So rejection is a big thing. And that's why taking this medication is crucial and now part of my life. At the start, I was taking about 70 tablets a day and now I'm down to about 30 tablets a day and that's probably what I'll take 
for the rest of my life, which is a combination of immune suppression, but also a lot of medication just to balance the side effects of that medication as well. So yeah, it's a little cocktail every morning and every night, but it's a small sacrifice to be alive and doing what I'm doing. Is that the only difference now for someone who's had a transplant? Like, can you function the way you could prior to becoming unwell? Yeah, I mean, I'm living a a full and proper life. I mean, probably the only things I couldn't or wouldn't do now is full contact sport, just from having had my uh, sternum cut open twice. It's a little fragile, but, you know, there's nothing else really that, you know, I can't go out and do. Sure, there's a few random things. I can't go skydiving that's fine. I probably didn't want to do that anyway. But no, in general, I'm living a pretty full life. There are things that I have to be careful of. And one that hasn't been all that relevant through the last year because of the coronavirus situation is traveling. So I need to be really careful with traveling and getting infections whilst, well, getting infections in general, but travel is a big one, you know, especially in more second or third world countries. Uh, the risk of me getting an infection and it becoming serious is quite high. So I have to be careful a little bit with that. It's the same with, I guess, living locally and getting infections. To a degree, I kind of live on what you'd consider the pregnancy diet now. So I have to steer clear of raw proteins like sashimi or raw or like runny eggs and that sort of thing, purely from a, a risk of a bacteria or infection so yeah I guess come to think of it there are some lifestyle changes that I've had to adapt but as I answered when you first asked I felt I feel like nothing's changed but yeah there are little things that I I can't do I guess but I've had plenty of oysters in the past and I can live without them in the (laughs) future so you know what I'm missing out on it's not a big deal yeah in the scheme of things it's nothing is exactly exactly So congratulations on getting engaged and your future wedding. Um, What else does the future hold for you? Yeah, so I guess all the the things that, you know, we we hope to have. So, yeah, getting married and we'd like to buy a house and start a family. Those special things are on the horizon. And, yeah, just hoping for a, a long and healthy life and, yeah, stay happy. Any more cycling goals? You seem to have done it all already. (laughs) I do need to do more and I guess at the moment <laughs> I'm in a I guess a state of finding out what's next you know part of the team that went on the the silo art trail ride are always saying all right what are we doing next and you know there's chat about cycling around Tasmania or cycle <laughs> to Adelaide or we'll cycle the Nullarbor watch this space on all those fronts we'll we'll get to something eventually I'm sure how is it for you to have a group of your closest mates doing that with you and encouraging you yeah it's incredible and I think another thing through everything that I've been through I've really been blessed with how good and close family and friends I've got I've been so lucky to have a really good close-knit friendship group and I've shared wards with other patients and they just didn't have what I had and yeah I I was really lucky to have the support that I've had and it means the world to me. You know, without that support, it would have been 
a hundred thousand times harder and you know there are days where you're like why am i i just want to give up i've had enough of this 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 is shit but having those people around it's like okay this is this i have to keep going because they they're here and they're supporting and they want us to keep going and yeah that's been really important and yeah really special that sounds amazing and so just one last question so i ask everyone this at the end of their interview if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be i think if i was to go back i would say to stay positive be yourself and listen to your body like it's so important your health is so important don't take it for granted if you don't feel well get it checked out because being happy being healthy is what's most important and yeah you need to you need to take care of yourself thank you so much james for sharing your story it's absolutely amazing and you're so inspiring and i want to wish you good luck for your all your future and for your wedding obviously and everything that's to come for you Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could please hit five stars and leave a review or take a screenshot and share it on social media so that we can reach and inspire more people. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any future episodes. And I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of the Inspirational Tales podcast.